Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. May 19, 2017 would have been Malcolm X's 92nd birthday. While most people think of Harlem when they think of Malcolm X, he's had a long history and impact on the life and legacy of Brooklynites. And in this episode, we'll explore Malcolm X in Brooklyn. Where people may have seen Bed-Stuy as a structurally shaped and imposed upon ghetto, Malcolm and his you know, followers and his members saw a community and the possibilities of a community. And so when they began um, setting up or establishing their presence in Bed-Stuy, it was from that perspective. Like, I'm just looking at the masthead of this mm-hmm. paper, which, of course, we'll post all these pictures yes. to show notes so that everyone can sort of read along and see. Uh, you know, th- I mean, there's no making bones of the fact that this is an extension of a religious group, yes. right? So um, d- at the top, um, right to the left of the, the title of the, the periodical, it says, uh, Dedicated to freedom, justice, equality for the so-called Negro. The earth belongs to Allah. Malcolm X used to have his, uh, a march. They had a, a, a place right up here on Bedford. Then they had a stake and take on uh, Franklin and uh, Fulton. The stake and take was like, you know, the Muslim stake and takes was like special, you know? And they would, they would organize at the stake and take. Then it would mark, march down Fulton, up Nostrand to downstate. Well, see, the, uh, Betty Shabazz was a nurse, mm-hmm. and uh, she had been in Harlem Hospital. Mm-hmm. Oh, so we were good friends. That. Oh, we were good friends. Oh. Yeah. So therefore, when she got pregnant, she, uh, she came to me. Mm-hmm. And her husband came with her each time. Really? He came with her. He's a very, ni- very nice man. Oh. And would he be there in the delivery room? No. no. She never came to her delivery she had six, I delivered six of her children. Mm-hmm. And they were all delivered at Brookdale. Zaheer, for listeners who may not be familiar with him, tell us a little bit about Malcolm X. Malcolm X was a civil rights and human rights activist that emerged on the public scene in the 1950s and 60s, a staunch advocate of what we would call the black nationalist a tendency in black political movements. Uh, He was born on May 19, 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska to Garveyite parents. His parents were followers of Marcus Garvey, who was a pioneering black nationalist in the early part of the 20th century. And, you know, his family went through their struggles fighting uh, racial intimidation. His father was killed at, at an early age. His, his mother um, was later institutionalized. The mm-hmm. family was 
broken apart and he was sent to a foster home. Uh, so had a very challenging upbringing. Uh, he became a kind of street hustler in his teen and early 20s, which led to prison. And while he was in prison, his siblings wrote him about this new movement that they had become a part of called the Nation of Islam, which blended classical Islamic ideas with black nationalism and esoteric notions, Freemasonry, just like a whole mix that was very attractive to a lot of especially uh, newly arrived migrants in the cities of the North in the 1930s and 40s. And by the time Malcolm received the, the teachings of, of the Nation of Islam, it, was, it spoke to him. And uh, after he came out of prison in 1952, he joined the movement in Detroit and quickly rose up through the ranks, uh, eventually being sent to Philadelphia to set up the temple there and to other cities throughout the country. And, and in 1954, he became the minister of the New York City's mosque in Harlem, New York. So what was it that spoke to him about the Nation of Islam? The Nation of Islam brought a radical critique of white supremacy in the form of a, a origin story that cast uh, white people as devils. <laughs> I mean, to be quite frank, and uh, Malcolm's experience with white racism when he heard that, it helped explain to him what he had experienced and what many African-Americans had experienced in the United States in the early 20th century with lynchings and Jim Crow segregation in the South and its own version of Jim Crow segregation in the North. And so it combined that strident critique of white supremacy with this elevation and celebration of the possibilities of black people, that black people could have their own institutions, their own communities, their own organizations, and and thrive and not have to be dependent mm -hmm. on a system which was seemingly designed to work against them. Yeah, so like a real structuralist critique of American racism, but through this sort of religious and cultural lens. Exactly. So when I think of Malcolm, I think of somebody who's from many parts of America. He's born in the Midwest. He lived in Boston before yeah. he was arrested. He yeah. went to Philadelphia. But the place I associate him most with, uh, with is Harlem, right? He seems to be sort of um, an iconic figure there. Um, we're here talking about Brooklyn. So make <laughs> right. the pitch to me, I guess. Right. Um, Brooklyn, uh, you know, Harlem's kind of far away from where we are right, right now. Make the right. pitch to me about how Malcolm is also of Brooklyn. Harlem was the base of his operation as a minister of the Nation of Islam and later after he left as the leader of the organization of Afro-American Unity and Muslim Mosque, Inc., the two organizations he set up. As I think as transportation options increased, people began moving into Brooklyn in significant numbers. African-Americans began moving into central Brooklyn, primarily Bedford-Stuyvesant, which began to eclipse Harlem yeah. as the kind of black population capital of New York City. And so the Nation of Islam, having what it understood as its mission to go where black people were, began organizing meetings in Brooklyn under Malcolm's direction. And the Nation of Islam grew in Brooklyn under Malcolm. They established businesses under Malcolm. One of the uh, major protests that happened in New York City in 1963, the building of SUNY Downstate, uh, where black activists, including um, led primarily by Brooklyn Core, the Congress of Racial Equality, protested the exclusion of black workers from the construction trade. Malcolm showed up at that. 
the Nation of Islam was wherever black people were. Mm -hmm. And so Malcolm in New York City was wherever black people were. We like to think about like the, the sort of the local history of a place. Take me back to Bed-Stuy in the 1950s and 60s. How is this being practiced on an everyday level? So Bed-Stuy and I, you know, our friend and colleague Brian Purnell, I think, has written very brilliantly about how Bed-Stuy became a ghetto. And he uses the term ghetto not in the ways people maybe commonly think of ghetto to pathologize black communities, but to critique the structural forces that create dilapidated and challenging living conditions in these communities. And so what's interesting, you know, as we think about the local uh, and Bed-Stuy, Malcolm had this formulation the Nation of Islam, because it's its emphasis on, you know, it's kind of separate black institutions, they were accused of being segregationists. And Malcolm was very clear that in his mind, um, segregation and separation were two very different things. That segregation was something that was imposed on you uh, by someone who was superior either in, in resources or in force, where separation was something you willingly did uh, as an equal. And so where people may have seen Bed-Stuy as a structurally shaped and imposed upon ghetto, Malcolm and his you know, followers and his members saw a community <laughs> and the possibilities of a community. And so when they began um, setting up or establishing their presence in Bed-Stuy, it was from that perspective. And what's interesting is that even the places that they first began to meet or organize kind of tie in this really long history of black activism. Yeah. You know, one of the first uh, places where they, they had an event in 1959 was a it was kind of a, a dinner event or banquet. And it was at Siloam Presbyterian Church. Right. This was a church that was founded by the Reverend James Gloucester, who was a leading black abolitionist. In eight, and it was founded in 1849. And so this church was this like place of black activism. And at the time that the members of the Nation of Islam had uh, the event in 1959, the pastor was Reverend Milton Galambison, who was continuing that tradition of activism of that church. He was an active member of the local NAACP. He would go on to lead a school strike, a major uh, protest against school segregation in New York City in 1964. And so... You know, you have to think about maybe it was a transactional thing, like they just like paid to rent but the it, hall. But of course, it's not, uh, but right? Yeah, because it's like who's gonna let these folks Absolutely. come up in here? I mean, this is a church, and they're letting these Muslims um, come and have an event. Yeah, and and just knowing a little bit about Glamison, like their politics don't neatly map onto each yes, other. They're yes. both clearly advocates for the black community, yes. but in enormously yes. different ways. Yes. And it's it's actually incredibly refreshing to think about. People saying, you know, we don't agree on everything, but, you know, yeah. let's hear each other yeah. at this space. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's that's part of the, the reason why looking at this locally is so yeah. important, because um, you see people sharing space um, and and sometimes not sharing the same, let's say, national commitments, but locally yeah. um, closer to home. The commitments seem much closer.
And I mean, to that end, I think, you know, that also plays out locally on an economic level. And so I've just been struck, um, you know, knowing a little bit about your work, about um, the kinds of economic supports that communities provided for each other with small businesses, right? Yes. There was a network of businesses that were set up in bed You know, some of these I've, I've been able to map looking at advertisements in like the Muhammad Speaks newspaper, grocery stores, barbershops, dry cleaners. And what's interesting is some of these earliest establishments were designed to satisfy not just the kind of ideological commitment to economic independence, but the religious commitment mm-hmm. of the community. They dressed in a certain way, so the clothes need to be clean, the suits need to be dry cleaned, the women's headpieces and gown garments need to be clean some way. Um, I'd imagine dietary restrictions. Dietary restrictions. Right? So the two grocery stores didn't sell pork or didn't sell alcohol. Yeah. The men had to have their hair military style mm. cut, so you need a barbershop. So it was really, um, there was a very logical way that these institutions kind of flowed out of not just economic need, but also like fulfilling a theological commitment. Yeah. So let's take this past the 1960s, past Malcolm's death. What happened to these institutions here? And I guess more broadly, can we still see the legacy of Malcolm X's influence in Brooklyn today? For people unfamiliar with Malcolm's history, uh, he left the Nation of Islam in 1964. Uh, there's there's a whole story behind another that. podcast. It's another right? podcast. <laughs> um, but there was a lot of tension. It was not a, an amicable parting. So he left the institution. Many people remained, however, in the Nation of Islam, including many of the people who set up a lot of these businesses. In 1975, the Nation of Islam underwent significant transformation when uh, Elijah Muhammad, who was the leader, his son Wallace, took over and began decentralizing the organization, relaxing some of the obligations on the part of people. So, you know, people weren't as feeling a sense of obligation to patronize these institutions. But then also, you know, this is post-civil rights and integration was being hailed as the kind of sign of progress. And um, many of these businesses thrived on segregated markets where people went to these stores because they couldn't find them elsewhere. They couldn't find quality service and, and goods. And of course, it's interesting because that that's being revisited in many ways when you look at like urban farming and, and local food co-ops and, and things of that sort. So I, I do think that some of the um, kind of institutional legacies are still there in the movement for food sovereignty in, in communities like Bedstein and the parts of central Brooklyn. Malcolm himself has a name, a street named after him. Malcolm X Boulevard in Bed-Stuy actually precedes the Malcolm huh. X Boulevard in Harlem. And it was largely due to the organiz- organizing of activists, people like Sonny Carson and G2EUC and, and others like that, um, who's, who were personally touched by Malcolm in the 1960s and organized in the early 1980s to have this street named after him. But you also have groups like the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, which has done significant work on policing and community safety and police community relations, inspired by, obviously, Malcolm X's name. You have the um, legacy of 
the East, which was a black cultural institution that in part was inspired by Malcolm in the 1970s and early 80s and had an independent black school and was also, you know, a major center of black organizing and cultural activity and jazz. And the students at the East, their T-shirts had Malcolm X on there. So Malcolm continued to inspire activists in Brooklyn well, well into this, this century. Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. In this episode's Into the Archive segment, we are headed back to one of our favorite tried and true <laughs> manuscript collections here at Brooklyn Historical Society. Its gifts just continue to give. Yes. Um, we're coming back to the Arnie Goldwag collection of the Brooklyn Congress of Racial Equality branch here in Brooklyn. Um, we'll put a link to this finding aid um, up on our show notes. But one of the reasons why we like this collection so much is that the man who donated it to Brooklyn Historical Society organized so many of his press clippings um, and other research and organizational materials by subject. So we were able to go in, open up a box, look up Malcolm X, and see what kind of treasures lay inside um, of that folder. You know, a collection can serve, can speak to so many different topics. I think that one of the reasons why we come back to this so much is that um, there's so many different ways the the papers in this collection kind of speak to Brooklyn's history, especially during this really vital time. We talked about um, networks in our last segment, mm-hmm. and I think what this, even just looking at the finding aid of this collection, reveals is networks of ideas, institutions, grassroots organizations. So was Malcolm X a member of the Brooklyn chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality? No, he was not a member, right? right? right. But he's clearly in a larger dialogue with many competing notions of what civil rights meant in the 1960s. And so it makes an enormous amount of sense that we would find Some materials here. And the materials show us, because it was Arnie Goldwag who was collecting this, that Malcolm X was very much on Arnie Goldwag's radar. Yeah, and Brooklyn Corps, as we mentioned in the previous segment, um, organized a demonstration, a series of demonstrations during the summer of 1963 in Brooklyn, where SUNY Downstate was being built to protest discrimination in the construction trades. And Malcolm was present oftentimes at these uh, demonstrations. Now, you know, Malcolm coming from the Nation of Islam's commitment to separate black institutions was not someone who would have joined in demonstrations in this way, but he was very much in support of the people who were participating in the demonstrations. And one of the things that he and his members would bring with them to these demonstrations were copies of the Muhammad Speaks newspapers. Which is what we're looking at in front of us right now. That's right, that's right. I think it's always good to think about how these collections came together. You know, we've mentioned that Goldwag was the press coordinator for the Congress of Racial Equality in Brooklyn, and he's he's clipping clipping clippings, right? And this is what we benefit from here. So we're not looking at an entire page of a newspaper, right? We're looking at a facsimile um, of something that when which he cut out the masthead and a bunch of articles and happily, you know, an, an, right. ar- an archivist in spirit. He also gave us dates and headlines right. and other right. things like right. that to provide context. So we're looking at a couple clippings that Goldwag made from the Muhammad Speaks 
periodical. Well, so the first question is here, what is this Muhammad Speaks <laughs> Yeah, now this is so interesting. <clears throat> I have to say that uh, I was really surprised to find this here. Um, I'm always, I had never heard of it. Yeah. So the uh, Muhammad Speaks newspaper was, there are different stories from when it was founded, but Malcolm X started a publication in 1960 called Mr. Muhammad Speaks out of, run out of the Harlem office. And the idea was to combat the uh, negative uh, portrayals of the community of the, the Nation of Islam that was in the mainstream press. In 1959, there was a, a news program that was called The Hate That Hate Produced that sensationalized the Nation of Islam and uh, members of the Nation of Islam and Malcolm in particular, who was, who was pretty savvy when it came to public relations himself, decided that they needed a paper. This paper was first edited by Dan Burley, who was an editor of Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine, an experienced editor of, of black newspapers. And, and then he passed it. He passed on and it was taken over by Richard Durham, who was a staff a writer at the Chicago Defender. So so these were these were not members of the Nation of Islam yeah, who were editing a, the paper. That's like a really interesting tension. Is this just like an internal newsletter? Is this like yeah, a party line? Yeah. But I mean, those are some big hitters yeah. in the world of publishing nationally. Yeah, and so, you know, the paper had like this dual function. It was, of course, covering the activities of the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad and, and Malcolm X. And so it, was, it did function as a kind of in-house news organ. But it also had like, significant coverage of what was happening, not just in black America, but under Richard Durham, it covered um, international news and black wow. freedom movements. And so this um, and, and the paper was was circulated by the men in the Nation of Islam. So it had national circulation. Um, and the men were required to sell a certain number of papers. Wow. So it, it had like this um, strong promotional push. And so when Malcolm was showing up at these events, you know, the Nation of Islam did not participate in the March on Washington. But in New York, where people were boarding the buses to go to the march, the members of the Nation of Islam were there selling the Muhammad's So they're paper. selling it. So it's yeah. not even like AM not, New York. They're handing yeah, it out. No, like, it's sold. And, wow. you know, there's stories where they would give them away. But so there's there's a whole lot going on here in terms of economic activity, in terms of um, kind of a discursive space being created, you know, by introducing language like Muhammad and uh, and the theology of the Nation of Islam alongside like these very uh, clear stories about what was going on in the civil rights movement. The Muhammad Speaks is providing this like interesting juxtaposition of the Muslim program with like very clear um, news coverage that um, activists around the country began to depend on because it had a national circulation in a way that maybe the Pittsburgh Courier, sure, the Chicago sure. Defender, the Amsterdam News was more localized. More local. I mean, so this is all very clarifying for me because when I when I started reading some of the yeah. clips that we pulled, um, this did not read to me like an organ of the Nation of Islam. Right. I mean, it, right. re it, it read to me like an Amsterdam news, yes. right? And I think yes. the thing that struck me the most is that it's very in dialogue with a much more radical politics of the, of the civil rights movement than I would ever associate with the, with the Nation of Islam. That's correct. So that's, correct. that's a very interesting tension. Yeah. When you look at the, like I'm just looking at the masthead of this mm -hmm. paper, which of course we'll post all these pictures yes. to show notes so that everyone can sort of read along and see. 
you know, th- I mean, there's no making bones of the fact that this is an extension of a religious group, yes. right? So um, d- at the top, um, right to the left of the, the title of the, the periodical, it says, uh, dedicated to freedom, justice, equality for the so-called Negro, the earth belongs to Allah. I love that. Tell me about this. <laughs> tell me about this so-called Negro. Well, so Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm certainly popularized this idea that people, the Negro, which was a term, the very mainstream acceptable term that was used to refer to to African Americans, was an un- unacceptable. This was a term given to black people by by white people. This gets back to segregation yes. versus separatism. Yes, and it's about who determines your identity. And according to the Nation of Islam, a Negro was an American creation. And in order to give black people an understanding of a history that began before America, they had to... And continues to be global. Exactly. And diasporic in scope. So they used the term black. They were one of the first to really popularize the term black to refer to to black people. So but they understood that people still responded to negro but they had to say so called. Like you're so called negroes because you're not really the minute you and this was so tied even after Malcolm left the nation of Islam this is so tied to the idea of not confining the understanding of the black freedom movement to the american context, right? And so by accepting the term negro you were already confining yourself yeah. to a space <laughs> where you were a minority as opposed to being part of this like black diaspora that whose you know, history has been obscured yes, from you yes 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 maybe we should just dive into yeah, one of the articles yeah. from a, a very heady time this was um, an article that was printed in the October 11th 1963 mm-hmm. issue of Muhammad speaks in August uh, 28th, 1963 was, of course, the March on Washington, a significant mass mobilization and demonstration that most people remember because it's where Martin King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And for many, this was a triumphant moment in the civil rights movement. Unfortunately, just a few weeks later, there was the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, which killed four young girls and was a, sh- a shocking and dismaying reminder of how far we still had to go. And the March on Washington being this visually unifying moment, you see the number of people um, there in Washington and you start to think, okay, maybe this right. is a country that is right. coming around right. and that to have this as the contrast was an unbelievable dismay, yes. right? Yes. And I think it's also maybe important to refresh people and remind people the particular tactics of 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 King's vision of the civil rights yeah. movement was radical, radical nonviolence, yes, right? Yes, and in yes. some cases, even putting yourself in the way of violence Absolutely. to bring about that kind of mm-hmm. horror, right? Mm-hmm. This article starts out really addressing exactly that, a, a quote, growing disgust over the refusal of national Negro leaders. And now that we know the context, right. um, <laughs> listeners, that should be a, a moment of analysis right. for you, um, to support militant self-defense for oppressed Negroes was registered here by this city's core chapter following a heated session over, and this is in capitals, if any blood flows, let it be our blood, tactics of the Reverend Martin Luther King. So a real critique of yes. King right at the yes. outset here. So then he goes on to describe the 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 writer goes on to describe the bombing, um, the murder, and um, cuts right to the story of Brooklyn Core. Right. 
the Brooklyn Corps voted to send tele the telegram. So this is talking about a, a message they wanted to send. Voted to send the telegram to Dr. King and to publicize their opinion throughout the press and radio, despite warnings that such might mean the revoking of their core charter. So this this is you know this is the local Brooklyn core chapter seemingly bucking the national uh, organization by issuing this call for for self defense, right? And getting support here from Muhammad speaks. Yes, yes. Fate of the telegram was decided, however by the National Corps Office, which after, f and, and this, this is really this fascinating. This is our favorite again. part. After a few castrating alterations, proceeded to dispatch an eunuch, which failed to emphasize the Brooklyn spirit of self-defense for the people. So the National Corps Office, I guess, Castrated. Edits, edits the transfer. <laughs> I mean, edits the telegram. But the language here is, of course, quite gendered, it's right? Like, it, it, and that is, I think, quite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, they're making no bones about it. It's it's almost immodest. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. It's like the t the telegram. The the editing was a castration, and what ended up they called the telegram a eunuch. See here, it makes me wonder. Do you do we know anything about the readers of Muhammad Speaks in terms of their gender? You, you talked, of course, yeah. about men. Yeah. Being the one who are required right, to, to sell distribute. it. Obviously, Nation of Islam is right. known, especially at this time, for its sort of very traditional right, gender politics. Right, right. Were women perceived readers of this? Oh, I think women and men. And you know, there's there's this like growing literature now looking at why some women welcomed the protection of patriarchy mm. in the black community, which had been denied to them. Right? right? You know, Fair Griffin has written an essay about that. There's actually a book coming out this year about patriarchy in the nation of Islam and how for like working class black women and, and, and other black women Absolutely. in general, like the, the protection, there was a cost, right, which was patriarchy, but the protection that it brought was welcome. And so um, you heard not just in the nation of Islam, but other especially nationalist movements or movements that stood up for self-defense use gendered language of like standing up yeah. like a man to yeah. protect our communities, to protect our family. And this is very much um, kind of playing into that idea. The author here clearly has the back yeah. of of the local yeah. of the local yeah. core, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm in, and you know, I think especially we've talked a little bit about the sort of the martyrdom or the lionization of King, right. and it is. It, I think it's always interesting to see in situ in these moments, like the real criticism yeah and yeah. you can understand where it's coming from yeah. in the context yeah. of the bombing yeah i mean of you know, King's yeah and just like a month after this article is when malcolm gave his famous message to the grassroots speech in detroit where he makes this distinction between the negro again here's that word mm -hmm. the negro revolution and the black revolution and he is very clear that a black revolution means a revolution for self-defense and, you know, in the our previous segment, we talked about, the, again, the sort of the network of people who are advocating for sort of racial equality at this moment, that organizations, politics don't necessarily map yeah. onto each other, yeah. but that they can still have overlap. And I mean, an obvious thing here is that Arnie Goldwag was white, yes. right? And Jewish. And Jewish. Yeah. And Jewish. Yeah. And actually, that's, a, a I think, a really good segue into the, the next document that we're looking at. So if we sort of jump forward a couple of years... Yeah. Malcolm X has been killed, yes. right? And we're looking at now a document written, a letter written by Arnie Goldwag to a Jewish, a local Jewish newspaper mm -hmm. um, about this very subject. This letter is written March 24th, which was about a month 
after Malcolm was killed. Uh, he was killed in New York by assassination in, in Harlem. And at the time that, you know, it's interesting, like, I don't know how many people see Malcolm X as a hero today. I mean, I know that a lot of black people do. How widely that is accepted is is unclear. We know Spike Lee had a popular film, and there was this moment where you saw like Bill Clinton jogging with a Malcolm X hat on. Malcolm X has appeared on a postage stamp, so there is a kind of mainstream acceptability. But what's important is at the time that Malcolm was killed, there was uh, there was a lot of unkind things written about him in papers. You know, the New York Times and others. They were kind of like, oh, he was a child of the ghetto and of black pathology. He lived by violence. He died by violence. He's tragic. You know. Not, not in any way a hero. And so apparently this paper, um, the Jewish Press, which was a Brooklyn paper, had advertised an upcoming series called The Haters. And they, they must have included uh, Malcolm X in, in the advertising. And so Arnie Goldwag responded by writing an, a letter to the editor. And he said, I was privileged to know Brother Malcolm X and other members of his organization, the OAAU, the Organization for Afro-American Unity. He was a leader of stature and true social passion with an international concern for human justice. It is well known that he was seeking allies among all victims of racism, discrimination, and poverty. Nationalism, incidentally, is not synonymous with hate. Think of the Jewish nationalists in Israel. I think you desecrate the memory of a true friend of all oppressed peoples when you put Malcolm X in the same category of the American Nazi party. What strikes me is actually how personal this letter is. So when we were first reading the clippings, I was thinking, I wonder if um, Goldwag is clipping these like the way that I would you know, clip something about right. a big politician or whether he actually... Um, whether he actually knew Malcolm. Right, and here we get right. the answer that he, it, it, there's clearly some emotion yes, in this letter, yes. especially on the on the, the heels of, his, right. of Malcolm X's murder that, you know, he he knew him. It was a privilege, he says, to, yeah, to and, know Malcolm Yeah, X. and I think, you know, so this is interesting, right? So here's Malcolm, whether he was in the nation or not, was a kind of avowed black nationalist and what people may think that represents. Certainly, according to Goldwag, this paper is equating black nationalism with hate with and with Nazism. Yeah. Um, and Goldwag is like, no, I knew Malcolm. Uh, I had the privilege to know him. And I think when we think about Malcolm X in Brooklyn, it isn't, this wasn't someone who just kind of like swooped in when there was like a demonstration. You know, this was someone who helped a nurture community when he was in the Nation of Islam. And also after he left the Nation of Islam, continued to work with activists and engage those activists. Like even even if they may have disagreed on tactics and strategies, mm -hmm. it's clear that there was a kind of respect, enough of a respect for the Muhammad Speaks to cover the activities of Brooklyn Corps and to be reciprocated by Arnie Goldwag, like coming to the defense of Malcolm's memory in writing to this editor. In this segment of Voices of Brooklyn, we're going to listen to two narrators who each give us a different perspective of uh, Malcolm X's history and resonance for Brooklyn. The first is an oral history with Richard Green, who is the CEO and founder of the Crown Heights Youth Collective, which was established in Brooklyn in 1977. 
Richard Green was born in Honduras. He moved to Crown Heights, Brooklyn in 1958. He attended Erasmus Hall High School. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps in Vietnam. He ended up uh, working on Charlie Chisholm's congressional campaign. And he founded the Youth Collective to address youth issues such as truancy, youth violence, employment, and police community relations. He emerged as a major figure in the aftermath of the 1991 Crown Heights unrest. Zaheer took this oral history actually pretty recently at the end of 2016 as part of BHS's Voices of Crown Heights um, oral history collection. The project is ongoing, and so we're in the process of um, processing this collection. So it's not quite available online, but it will be soon. Right. I should say that we're um, thankful to Richard Green for giving us permission to use this excerpt until the entire interview is processed. You know, I remember one name that comes to mind, you probably run it in a history book, um, Reverend Galamison. And Reverend Galamison was like our Malcolm X, our, uh, well, actually, it would be like Dr. King here in Brooklyn. Um, and we would be, it would be honored if one of our, because one of my friends, I'll never forget one of my friends, Michael, and his brother, uh, they went to Reverend Galamison's church. And it would be like, if they would invite us to go to church at Reverend Galamison's church, that was like a special moment, you know, to go to his church. Um, I remember 1962, they were building Downstate Hospital. I'm going to say 62, 63, somewhere in that area. They were building Downstate, and what happened is they were building Downstate. And... Um, what happened is Malcolm X used to have his, uh, a march. They had a, a, a place right up here on Bedford. Then they had a stake and take on uh, Franklin and uh, Fulton. The stake and take was like, you know, yes, the Muslim stake and takes was like special, you know. And they would, they would organize at the stake and take. Then they would mark, march down Fulton, up Nostrand to Downstate. They, you know where Downstate is located on New York Ave. And there was the first time I ever heard of people laying down in, in front of bulldozers. They were trying to get more blacks to be hired on the, on the building site to build a, building this new hospital. And of course, I, I might be a was preteen, maybe 13, 14, but I would always ask my mother, could I go, could I go, could I go? They're gonna come down Nostrand. I lived near Be- Beverly near Nostrand. I said, can we go just, I said, oh no, 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 you can't do that. That's not, you know, those, that's not the place to be. You know, because of these demonstrations could be changing, uh, turning away. So, but I always remember that, you know, Malcolm coming down, marching down. And, um, yeah, the 60s was kind of, but the Muslims, I guess, were the the people who had made the most impact. Muhammad Ali, of course. Uh, We used to sneak in the Lloyd's Theater to go see him fight. Uh, And... uh, it was like, you know, Muhammad Ali was like the greatest thing in our world. Well, he calls us the greatest, but it was in our world, he was like, uh, you know, everybody couldn't think of a greater man than him. Uh, and of course, Malcolm X was, was special then. And then, of course, Dr. King uh, had his part to play in the, in the whole piece. And then long, not long after that, a little while after that, we had Shirley Chisholm came along uh, right here in the neighborhood. As a matter of fact, we had this street right here named for her. Park Place and Kingston is named Shirley Chisholm. Uh, I worked with her for a minute uh, when I came out of the military. Um, 
So, you know, the 60s was, you, we kind of kept them at a, at a bay. You know, you kind of knew about it. You knew about demonstrations. You knew about maybe at night, you know, there may be something that you may have to leave out of your house. Those kinds of thoughts entered your mind. But um, to us, I guess, growing up, we left that to the adults. We left that to the other people. You know, uh, the biggest thing in our world was to buy uh, a copy. We didn't have money to buy a copy of Muhammad Speaks. The guy used to come around every week selling Muhammad Speaks. And he was so, i never forget him. He always used to say, go on, you don't have it. It was like a nickel. You don't have it? Here, take it. Give it back. Give it to me. Just make sure you read it and give me the nickel next week. You know, we would never get the nickel to him, but he'd always come every week and give us a copy of Muhammad Speaks. And in those days there, you know, sitting down reading Muhammad Speaks was like, psh, kind of on the militant side, you know what I'm saying? So uh, that was my, my, my notion of the 60s. And then by 66, I'm in the military. I went in the military. Oh, my God, I love that last line. <laughs> that was my yeah. notion of the 1960s. But yeah. I think the reason I love that yeah. is because yeah, this clip, which is longer, actually, I think, than a lot of clips we mm -hmm. often play, but it is, all of it is important, is how impressionistic it is. Mm -hmm. It's not about, well, then I went here and then the next day I went here and I made sure I talked to this person and this person. It is so, it's about a man recounting the formation of his consciousness yeah. at a formative moment of his youth yeah. when he is a preteen into sort of a young adult moment. And it's not about the, the moment that something happened or the one person. Right. It's about the entire way that the milieu in which he grew up shaped who he then became a, as a man. Yeah, and in this kind of remembrance, it reminds you, it emphasizes the importance of the bigger picture. That for Richard Green, um, you know, there's this part where he says, you know, we left that to the adults. Mm. Like to him, these were all adults. Mm -hmm. Glamison, Malcolm X, Martin King, Muhammad Ali, Shirley Chisholm. These were adults all working on our behalf. I love the way he talked about Muhammad Speaks. I thought that was a beautiful description. Think about the people who are an influence in your life. And there's this man yeah. who get, who gave him his Muhammad Speaks and said, just pay me next time, just pay me next time. And that small kindness. And, um, you know, if that, <laughs> if that man's goal was to to teach yeah. <laughs> this young man yeah. something, he did it, yeah. right? And, yeah. and what it meant to read that and the and the role that that periodical that had in, um, in, in the shaping of his political consciousness. It's such a, I think it's just such a beautiful moment. It's like, these were gonna be like, this is our militant, you right. know, what does he say? Right. He's like, you know, it was, it was, in, it was on the militant side, right. you know? And it's right. just like, you right. can, you can see his mind opening up yeah. by the things that he's reading. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, uh, this, this, so, this so like affirms what we were talking about in a previous segment about the close reading of the Muhammad Speaks. Our second narrator is also going to kind of reframe our decenter the story that we've been exploring thus far. She is Dr. Josephine English. She was born in Ontario, Virginia in 1920. When she graduated from a medical school in 1949, she actually was one of New York's first African-American female doctors working at Harlem Hospital. She moves then to Brooklyn to work and live where she finds she founds the Women's Health Center, Adelphi Medical Center, and the Paul Robeson Theater in the Fort Greene neighborhood of Brooklyn. She's obviously just a central figure um, in 20th century Brooklyn history. Dr. English died in 2011 at the age of 91. 
In this clip, we're going to hear her talk not necessarily about Malcolm X, but about somebody who was central to Malcolm X's life. Oh, well, see, uh, Betty Shabazz was a nurse, mm -hmm. and uh, she had been in Harlem Hospital. Mm -hmm. oh, so we were good friends. That. Oh, we were good friends. Oh. Yeah. So therefore, when she got pregnant, she, uh, she came to me. Mm -hmm. And her husband came with her each time. Really? He came with her. He's a very, ni very nice man. Oh. And would he be there in the delivery room? No. No. She never came to her delivery. Mm -hmm. She had six, I delivered six of her children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he was always traveling, going here and going there, but he never, no. Mm -hmm. And they were all delivered at Brookdale. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he was a very nice, very nice man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But Betty was a nurse. She was a nurse. Mm -hmm. And she was a Harlem nurse. Mm -hmm. So it was only natural that she would go to a, a Position out of Harlem Hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, at that, when you and Betty first met, had she was she already married to Malcolm X? Oh no! When I first met her, mm -hmm. oh no! Mm -hmm. She was a she was a student nurse. Oh okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I knew her for a long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was surprised that she was married to him when she came. I didn't know. Well, I didn't know him. Mm -hmm. See, and uh, when she came to the, oh, he always came with her. So. Oh, and you were surprised to find out that that was her. Yeah, husband? I didn't know that first. Yeah. Oh, but did you know him? Was he already? A no, leader? I didn't know anything about him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I knew Betty for some time. One of the things I really like about Doctor English is that. I don't think she ever mentions Malcolm's name. And I, I think yeah. this is so, like, this is so significant when we talk about how oral histories are so important to uh, giving us new centers, uh, new gravitational pulls in terms of the historical narrative. I think a few times when she's thinking about Malcolm, she says, he was a very nice man. Like, but but I knew Betty. Bring it back to <laughs> Bring it back yeah. to Betty. Let's talk yeah. about her accomplishments. It yes. is really the vibe yes. that you get from yes. this. Yes. It's, yes. It's, yes. it's so true. And I think, yeah, and it be and rightfully so, right? Because I mean Betty Shabazz was enormously accomplished. She clearly knew her as this rising star, this incredibly bright young woman when you think about the um the the unbelievable reproductive labor yes. of um you know giving birth to six children in a relatively short amount of time it's like who cares if he was in the delivery room this is the woman who right. did the work That's you right. know That's i mean right. it really i mean that is really i think the the underlying theme here is yeah. and and kind of a beautiful thing that dr english is doing is elevating that woman's story much has been said about Betty Shabazz's influence on Malcolm X, the importance of her in his life, but there's always a center at that story. That's right. Right? That's right. And I think what Dr. English is saying is that let's throw that out the window. That's right. This is this this is a story of Betty and how she met a very nice man while she was on her way to becoming this very well-established nurse. Exactly. And I think that that's really important for us understanding not only 
Betty but Malcolm. And um, certainly Betty had her, her own history in Brooklyn. She went on to become an administrator at Medgar Evers College uh, here in, in Brooklyn. And so that in many ways extended uh, Malcolm's history and legacy. Certainly she never stopped carrying aloft the memory of her husband. One of the other things that I, th I think that's interesting, there are two things here. One is that we tend to think of Malcolm as in terms of his public role. And this is Malcolm as a as a family man who has family obligations, yeah. who is taking his wife to the doctor. And the other thing is that, you know, the Nation of Islam's gender politics, interestingly enough, created opportunities for black women that Malcolm had to take his wife to a a black woman yes. doctor yes. to care for him for her yeah. right uh, and and so I think it's it's interesting in terms of how one kind of analysis can read communities that practice gender separation as kind of restricting opportunities but they also may create opportunities in other ways yeah and I think there's an important context of the deep racism of the medical field um, at this time mm -hmm. many times that provides a political context to the trajectory of Dr. English's career yeah. and of Betty Shabazz's yeah. career. And, you know, as always, I think we would encourage listeners to go and listen to the entirety of this really remarkable interview, which we'll post on the show notes, to just get a sense of how how political it it was um, the decisions that Dr. English was making to establish these centers of black medical life in Brooklyn. And that would have very much been part of this sort of constellation of civil rights that we've been situating Malcolm X's influence in Brooklyn. As you all know from our little intro, BHS is a very old institution. We're 154 year, years old this year. Well, this is a pretty significant moment in our history because on May 19th, we are actually opening a second location. We are opening our new satellite museum along the Brooklyn waterfront in the neighborhood of Dumbo. So it's very exciting. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable moment in our history. So we hope you'll all come out to see it now and in the future. Um, in On the 19th, it'll be opening with a small photography exhibition called Shifting Perspectives. And then come December, we will be reopening the space with a pretty major new exhibition called Simply Waterfront that dives into hundreds, if not thousands, of years of Brooklyn's waterfront history. And I just got to say, this is some, this is one of Julie's babies, and <laughs> we're all very proud of the work that she has done leading this project for this exhibition. You've gotten a taste of it in a few of our episodes where we talked about the environment and waste on the water waterfront and working on the waterfront and queer spaces on the waterfront so you can you can see like the waterfront has been really important to us and and I'm looking forward to the opening in May and then of course the opening of the major exhibition in in December me too. And if this is a baby, it's like the longest gestation of my life. <laughs> but in the spirit of that, I actually wanted to endorse an event about the waterfront because, 
you already know, you, our listeners, already know how good this event is going to be because you've heard this guest's voice before. So on Thursday, June 8th, here at BHS's Pierpont Street location, we are going to be featuring the incomparable Hugh Ryan, mm. who um, was one of our guests on the third episode of Flatbush in Maine. Hugh is the founder of the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History, and he will be exploring Brooklyn's waterfront as a refuge for queer working class people. So the event begins at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, June 8th. It is a mere $5 mm. for a ticket, and it is, of course, free for members, which I'm sure you all are. By now, we'll be posting um, a link to sign up for the event on our show notes, and I'll see you there. You know, there there's so many amazing events coming up that it's it's getting harder and harder for us to choose just one, which is kind of like how we, we wanted to do these this segment. So I will just tell you to go to brooklynhistory.org to the events page and look at this amazing lineup of events we have coming up. One of the events that I am personally invested in is a listening session and discussion, Stories of Neighborhood Change. And this is part of the Voices of Crown Heights project that Brooklyn Historical Society has been doing with Weeksville Heritage Center and Brooklyn Movement Center. You know, among the first casualties of gentrification are the stories that people tell about their neighborhoods. And so we're going to listen to some of those stories that people have about Crown Heights and its changes over the years. This event is on Monday, June 12th. It's at 6.30 p.m. and it is free. So bring your ears and come and an open mind and an open mind and come to listen and in the tradition of listening i'm happy to announce the launch of brooklyn historical society's online oral history portal at brooklynhistory.org forward slash oral history where we have nearly 250 interviews from nine collections over 272 hours of listening from narrators who hail from over 25 countries and live in over 25 neighborhoods in Brooklyn. We were talking about important moments in the history of Brooklyn Historical Society and our new museum is one, but this to me is just as important a milestone in our institution's history. For the first time ever, we are able to offer up not just full oral histories easily accessible online, but they're delivered in such a way that it makes listening to them and searching them and using them so much easier. Right, Zaheer? Absolutely. So... As we do more and more collections like Voices of Crown Heights, those will get added to the portal. And many of the oral histories that we have featured over the last year on Flatbush and Maine can now be found on that portal. So uh, we look forward to seeing you at our events and encourage you to log on and listen. We want to give one last big shout out to our youngest colleagues, the members of Brooklyn Historical Society's Teen Council. Each year, BHS um, convenes a group of teens in grades 9 through 12 to research a topic in Brooklyn's history or culture and to help bring a little bit of the youth perspective to our approach to interpretation. This year's Teen Council has spent the semester researching women Brooklyn graduates, and they will present their biographies and portraits on large-scale hanging panels inside BHS with an exhibition that opens on May 31st from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. 
This event will take place at Brooklyn Historical Society's Pierpont Street headquarters, and it's open to the public, so we hope you'll join us to celebrate these young curators. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on whatever podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephseholoss.com. Our production associate is Andrew Kaberline. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. Thank you.